Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Social Justice Education Network podcast. Today, we sat down with Orlando Rodriguez from the PBS documentary, In Our Son's Name. In Our Son's Name is an intimate portrait of Phyllis and Orlando Rodriguez, whose son, Greg, dies with thousands of others in the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. The bereaved parents choose reconciliation and nonviolence over vengeance and began a transformative journey that both confirms and challenges their convictions. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Center for Faith Studies. The Center for Faith Studies was established in August of 2004 as part of outreach at Countryside Community Church. The Center's mission has been to foster a culture of faithful inquisitiveness into the nature of God, the created world, and our individual and collective roles in it. The center draws upon a variety of disciplines, including comparative religion, theology, the humanities, and the sciences in offerings of classes, small group discussions, and large group presentations. Center for Faith Studies sponsors an annual lecture series which invites nationally prominent scholars, authors, artists, scientists, and theologians to Omaha to both inform and involve its audiences in challenging dialogue on issues of importance in our contemporary world. Thank you, Center for Faith Studies, for being an amazing partner and sponsor to the Social Justice Education Network podcast. Thank you. And here we go. of the Social Justice Education Network podcast. This is your host, Emilio Herrera. I'm joined here today by, um, would you like to introduce yourself? I always... um, Orlando Rodriguez. Yes, Orlando Rodriguez. And Orlando, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I think your story and the story of your wife and um, of your entire family is is so crucial. Um, So before we get started, I think... uh, It'll explain a little bit if I um, mention that Orlando is a professor of sociology at Fordham University in the Bronx, New York. So not a local uh, around here in Omaha, and this continues our series here at the Center for Faith Studies of bringing in national speakers to talk about issues of faith and justice. So Orlando, um, would you like to tell us what you're talking about here today? Yes, um, we are um, talking about what happened to my wife, Phyllis and me and uh, our son Gregory, uh, roughly our son died on September 11, 2001, at the bombing of the World Trade Center, and that was something that really changed our lives completely, in good and obviously in bad ways. And part of that journey for us has been trying to f- figure out how can one be compassionate a- in a world of violence. So this is uh, this podcast is also impairing with uh, a speech that you're giving here in Omaha, Nebraska on the subject and also with a documentary that has been, been made about it. Um, I think some people listening would be surprised by that, say how, how hard must it have been, must it be for you to go and speak about this topic, but then also to dedicate yourself to a documentary about this. So what was that process like for you? It was difficult. The The person who did the documentary is a wonderful woman, Gayla Jamison, uh, and she is very solicitous of the people that she films. She We had complete control 
over what we could say and not say. We also did a very collaborative kind of relationship in the film. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, after each scene, you know, when you go back home or when you go to bed, then it all comes back to you, and it's uh, it's something that one has to deal with, not pleasant. So would you say, was it a stressful process for you? Because it sounds like it. And um, inside the documentary that uh, isn't out uh, yet, quite yet, um, the documentary I, is, is out. Is, is it yeah. out now? Okay, I know yes. I got I got a, a link to it. So this documentary that you can get out, and where can people get that if they want yes, to? Yes, it's called In Our Son's Name, and it is available. Well, it was shown in many PBS stations, so you could probably pick it up from a PBS station if they show it again. Mm-hmm. I think it's still being shown in some PBS stations. It is available through uh, Lightfoot Films, uh, or and also through Vimeo, uh, which is a, a link by which you can get it. And uh, in addition, there is a, an educational version of it, uh, so which has a study guide. So uh, it, it's suitable for classes that deal with scenes of violence and reconciliation. So in inside of this documentary, I I got to um, see kind of this. Um, ebb and flow of the suffering that that your family has gone from. I in the beginning, um, I don't want to give too much of the film away because it is it is worth seeing in its entirety for for the context. Um, said it, it helped to get out and be very active, and uh, I believe you penned uh, a letter which was not in our son's name. So how did being active uh, in the beginning? help you and then what what changed why when did the the real impact start to sink in the uh the impact began the second day you know after we realized that our son had died in basically a, a political bombing and it it led uh, certainly not to the film that is being shown now but it led to our wanting to say something about our government taking another route, not the route that actually they took, which has led to now uh, uh, 15 years of violence, you know, war. You know, people who have been born, let's let's say, in 2001, for them, war is a normal thing. That's what we have been having since then. And not to very good ends, I would say. So uh, we wanted to um, state publicly at a time when everybody assumed that it was perfectly okay to go into another country and begin bombing uh, in order to revenge ourselves, you know, from what was done to to us. We thought that uh, we wanted a, a different point of view, one that said that it wasn't worth it that it, uh, it was going to lead to more and more violence. It, and so it happened. You know, so uh, it, uh, it, it, it became a, a very difficult thing for us. You, you say stress. Yes, uh, basically, uh, we don't live a stressful life, but it comes up very often you know, in many kinds of ways. As it does now, you know, the, the aftermath of this conversation is going to be some kind of stress in our life, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. 
Absolutely. And um, I think it's, it's so powerful for you to get out there. Another quote in the film uh, that they hit me right in the center of my heart, because I've, I've heard uh, lots of people say why we shouldn't go, why we shouldn't have gone to Middle East, whether it was just not tactically sound, whether it cost too much money, um, whether that we couldn't find the targets. But something that you said in the film was that um, your son essentially was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And how many other children are going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and will be killed by by U.S. Uh, military strikes, by bombs, by U.S. military intervention? And I that that just that hit me directly because I think it confronts this idea that we have of that the United States is the good guys, and so when we go in, we're going to just do good things. Can you kind of uh, extrapolate on that? Talk a little bit about that idea. Well. One of the things that you realize after a while when you begin studying these things is that wars are conducted by soldiers, but in some ways they are the safest in these wars. Of course, we have never had a, a homegrown war here since the Civil War in the 19th century. All of the wars have been outside of the United States. The people who have suffered the most in all of these wars have been civilians you know, who just wanted to do their thing, you know, wanted to live. But part of the logic of war is that you have to either kill civilians as a collateral kind of thing or else as a terror kind of thing. So um, that led me right from the beginning to put what happened to us, Phyllis and me and our daughter, in context, which was that we certainly were suffering from what had happened. But basically what, what he, we had done is to join millions and millions of people all over the world and here who are suffering. And that is not acceptable. That is such, I think that's such a, a powerful thought. Um, I know lots of people in, in time of crisis, um, and especially after uh, September 11th, 2001, um, look to their faith to say, what should we do here? And uh, I remember there being two two different trains of thoughts in there. Uh, for the majority of people who listen, um, and for the majority of people inside of the United States who are Christian, and there was the route of um, an eye for an eye. But then there was also the idea of you turn the other cheek. Yes. What was the story of of how your faith interacted um, with your with your dis- decision to write the letter, with your decision to how you would go and talk about this? It was an evolving story. You know, I was baptized Catholic, but I was raised Methodist. But as soon as I reached the, uh, the teenage age, like most teenagers began to question uh, religious beliefs and also became acquainted with secular theories, philosophies, and so on. You know, I remember one of the, uh, my, my turning points is when I went into uh, middle school, we learned a world history about a guy named Buddha, you know. And I said to my mom, this guy sounds like Jesus, you know. So if he says the same thing as Jesus, why, why, why do I have to you know, consider myself a Christian? So basically that's the way I was for a long, long time. You know, I was trained as a sociologist. Um, we were trained to be objective, scientific, rational, to believe that the solution to things are in the uh, in our own grasp as as uh, rational thinking citizens, and my only 
rush with religion at that point was that there was this guy, Jesus, you know, who I had learned about and uh, who I loved, you know, as a young kid because he, he seemed to be so warm and welcoming. But basically, I, I didn't think that at that point, I didn't think that Jesus offered anything that you could not get out of a sociology book. Mm-hmm. Uh, over time, I, I realized that I was wrong, that uh, in fact, uh, that Christianity, uh, because that's my faith, but Judaism, Islam, Buddhism offer ideas and solutions to which secular philosophy cannot answer because it's, it, it cannot deal with questions of faith. You know, as, when I'm teaching, I'm teaching as a, as a sociologist, so I, I don't talk about questions of faith. When I'm thinking and when I'm doing, uh, I put the sociology aside and I think about how the faith can help me make sense of a very crazy world. And it's not an easy thing to do, you know, our our Christianity or for other other things, you know. uh, uh, Christianity is sort of like a user's manual that doesn't tell you how to do things. Mm -hmm. You, You have to read, you have to ponder... You have to read here and then read there. You have to talk to people. And, and that's how I became, over time, uh, a Christian. You know, but a, a, a Christian, obviously, you know, in a world that has many, many kinds of Christians, Christians who uh, believe that uh, almost anything that you do is sinful, Christians who believe that uh, the Bible tells them to, uh, to kill, under certain circumstances, uh, have in mind Psalm 137, which is a beautiful psalm, <laughs> and it ends with uh, the Israelites saying that uh, they're going to get even with the Edomites, and then they're going to dash their babies against the rock. You know, that's is that Christianity? Well, some people think that that's part of the deal, you know, but fortunately, others don't. You know, they, they see a, a different kind of of thoughts in Christianity, and and they get them mostly out of uh, thinking about Jesus, what Jesus said and did, thinking about what the prophets said and did, and and thinking, how can I draw the right conclusions from this, uh, which you cannot unless you think about it. There was another scene in inside of the film. Um, where there was this discussion inside of a Jewish synagogue uh, that involved you, your wife, and uh, a Muslim woman, and I and I saw that and I thought, oh, this is you know this is a great scene, and it's something that I think that some people are striving for very hard of saying, how can we all come together? But I think if you were to take a poll of of people in the United States, there's a lot of people who see um, Muslim people as they tie them to that day, to September 11th, 2001. Mm-hmm. So who might see your actions doing that as um, it, does, it doesn't make any sense of mm-hmm. why you would extend an olive branch to an ideology that is uh, the fault for this national tragedy and for you a personal tragedy. What was your thought process going into that conversation and what did you feel about it after? That Muslim woman loved uh, lost her son 
on September 11. He was a member of the New York Police Department. He was uh, an, an emergency uh, uh, services technician. He wasn't working that day, but like many other firemen and police and emergency people, they rushed to the scene to see what they could do. And he died there. And then his mother and father had to be investigated by the FBI because their son was Muslim. So it took him you know, quite a, a while for the authorities to decide that this was not a, a uh, dangerous Muslim. This was uh, an American who happened to be of the Muslim faith who did what his faith and what our secular beliefs tell us to do, which is to help people in distress. It has taken her a long time to, to, to try to digest how somebody who is a, uh, an American-born, uh, who does the right things, including giving his life, because that's his profession, uh, is seen as a, a, as a dangerous radical. So that's how I entered into it. Uh, this woman had a lot of courage to go into a synagogue and to, and to say these things. And fortunately, she got the sympathy of the people who were in this synagogue. You know, one of the most beautiful things you see there is that at the end of the, of the discussion, everybody's hugging everybody. You know, my wife Phyllis is hugging her, is hugging other uh, Muslims, from from our county where we live, and uh, I believe it, it it was a major contribution uh, to uh, interfaith relationships in our town. I think that's I think that's powerful. I think it's wonderful, um, and just really a testament to really how complex all of this is. And I think a lot of people want us to draw very stark lines. Um, and it's almost a shame that we have to we even have to specify of saying oh, they're Muslim but they're American and uh and right now we have uh presidential candidates saying um that we should keep all the Syrian refugees out because we just don't know if they could be uh dangerous um in just the political landscape that is here. But I think something that has led to this political landscape and something that we talked briefly about um uh, before we started recording is that um, me and you are are both professors. We both uh, teach, and I mentioned that uh, something that I run into quite often, and I'm sure you do um, as well, especially considering the classes that you teach, is that we students now um, were likely born after 2001 or were born uh, maybe right before 19, 1998, 1999. Um, how do you think? How have you seen a difference and a change in the in the opinion of interfaith relationships in Muslims or even the idea of, of uh, radical terrorism. How has that changed our youth? It's, it's uh, something unbalanced, you know, for, for some people who come out of the Christian faith or who come out of just nationalism, you know. Anybody who has uh, an Arabic-sounding name, uh, by definition, is an enemy of the United States. On the other hand, there has been a developing movement about Muslims here to, to show that Al-Qaeda and ISIS do not represent Islam, that in fact they, they, they represent 
an extreme kind of Islam, very similar to the extreme extreme kinds of Christianity and Judaism that exists in the United States. You know, extreme kinds of religions, of versions of religion that say that for the uh, sake of the faith, it's okay to kill people. Of course, that's also shared by many secular uh, philosophies as well. You know, nationalists, uh, left-wing philosophies right-wing philosophies. But I think with respect to uh, Islam, the fact that Muslims have begun to organize to show that they are Americans, to show that they're law-abiding, to show that they do not share the the, the thoughts of, of people who uh, work for al-Qaeda or ISIS, and have been able, through those things, to attract people of other faiths. Uh, so in my town, for example, there's a very strong interfaith connection in which people from synagogues, uh, Catholics and Protestant churches, and, uh, and mosques get together to discuss various things, including how to deal with elements of racism that happen uh, every once in a while. So that you know, when we hear about something like the San Bernardino County tragedy, you know, Christians of all faiths are there, right there, you know, manifesting a single way of thinking about this, which is this does not represent Islam, does not represent Christianity, does not represent Judaism, is a distortion of what these religions are. Do you, when, and I, this is a unique time, as always, as all uh, election cycles happen. I think it brings out um, vitriol from from all sides of people. People uh, are more impassioned, but um, I think about just the direct aftermath of uh, of those attacks. Uh, people were using when Barack Obama ran uh, the first time. People were using his middle name and accusing him of being Muslim, and therefore saying, um, since he's Muslim, he's unfit to to lead this country. Um, and even, as I mentioned, people using Syrian refugees, talking about that in our political cycle. Do you think this is something that will remain uh, kind of in, in American politics, in American dialogue? Or do you think that this is something that we will we will grow out of and grow from? Well, to think that we will grow out of or grow from means that, you know, you just sit and wait for it to happen. But mm-hmm. it's, it's not, if we don't do anything about it, it's not going to happen. It's a, it's a very dangerous time for all of us. You know, we have a population that is scared uh, with right reasons. You know, the, the world that we have had, especially since 2008, is a world of, um, you know, constant market disruptions. People losing jobs, you know, people losing jobs to to uh, factories outside of us, outside of the United States, that are actually American factories, you know. So this, and then, then there's this issue of why can't we just get rid of ISIS? You know, why can't we get rid of Al Qaeda? What's so What's so difficult about it? You know, and and so there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, let's face it, you know, the the United States. Until uh, I don't know how many years was the first world power. That's no longer the case. It's still the most powerful nation, but it has uh, challenges 
not from ISIS, not from Al-Qaeda, but from China and, the, and Russia and India and other, other countries that want to join the game, you know, which is a, a market society that creates tremendous disruptions, disruptions for all of us. So no wonder people are so, uh, how should I say, upset, fearful, wondering what's going to happen. Why shouldn't they? I also wonder what is going to happen. You know, what, what, is going, what is the United States going to look like five years from now? Should it still want be the, the, the major power in the world? Could, it be, could there be another way of doing these things? You know, can we get to a point where the idea of the top dog does no longer exist, but where if, if China is benefiting from us and we're benefiting from China, why can't we come to some kind of agreement? You know, if the European Union is, uh, sells to us and we sell to the European Union, do we need to think of them as, as enemies, uh, you know, uh, commercial enemies? And mostly, you know, what can we do about the thousands, millions of people here in the United States, Latin America, Africa, Europe, Asia, who are just going under because of, of these, this globalization, you know, that, that brings so many economic disruptions to people? Uh, that, to me, would be the answer. Uh, to this question. Uh, yes, I have to think about our working class and, and small businesses who are suffering, but I, I also have to think about Greeks, you know, who are going through a terrible period now, or Afghans, you know, whose uh, only method of surviving is to sell heroin to countries that, uh, that have a big demand for heroin. And uh, cannot get out of a war-torn situation. So, going back to you know my son's death, Emilio, one of the things that I well I think I already said it. You know, if you realize that you're just part of a suffering world, uh, if you if you really take that in, then then you you, you come to have a different attitude about uh, the people south of the border to us and the people north of the border to us. The people to the east of us and the people to the west of us. I think that's a, a powerful thought and really seeing, and if I hear you correctly, is that we're all just a part of something bigger. Um, when a, people, uh, when they experience the, the loss of a child or a loss of a family member, it can bring a huge amount of tension on the inside. And I think a lot of people listening are probably wondering, how, how did you and your wife deal with that and then including your daughter how did you as a family did you talk openly about uh the loss of your son or was it something that everyone needed some time away from it before they could talk about it yes you know so far we have talked to phyllis and orlando as you know citizens you know exercising their rights of citizenship i haven't talked about phyllis and orlando as a a couple Mm -hmm. who have a daughter you know, mm-hmm. who all of a sudden became our main source of emotional support. Uh, we know, we knew that when there's a when there's a tragedy like this, loss of a son, daughter, especially, marriages can just fall apart. Mm-hmm. They just can't figure out how how to 
how to reckon with this thing, you know, and they uh, very often somehow the the marriage doesn't 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 succeed. So you have this unfortunate thing of uh, you know divorces that follow tragedies. We knew that, so uh, as Phyllis and Orlando, not as public citizens, we sought help. You know, so we we got uh, help from uh, grief counselors who helped us see uh, a loss like this as the most terrible thing that can happen to you, but also that's part of normal life, and that part of grieving is to give your partner some kind of space. Phyllis is very social. Uh, you know, she she gains some support, sustain sustent from visiting people, having pe- people visit us. You know, being what she has always been, which is actually like our son Greg. You know, a very social kind of person who who needs to be with others. I'm the opposite. I I, I like to uh, I'd like to uh, withdraw and actually, you know, uh, read more than anything else. <laughs> right now, uh, theology is my main source of, uh, of my, my main source of reading. You know, I, I need that. You know, I, I, need the, I need the solitude. I need to be able to think about what I'm doing. And, and uh, Phyllis had to respect that. And, and, and I had to respect what she was, you know, which, which means we're opposites, and total opposites in that way. But if we, if our marriage was going to thrive, we had to deal with these things. And yes, you mentioned uh, openly talking about the death. Yes, that's that's very important. You know, uh, there's a tendency to sort of put it aside, uh, not talk about it. Why? Because you might cry. Because you might just you know lose it for a minute. Uh, and uh, what's more terrible for a man than to cry? And so you, you have to struggle with that, you know. And that, that means that um, you have to do it by facing it, you know, by acknowledging that something bad has happened to you and that you have to make the most of it. And if it means at some point just losing it, or being angry, or anything like that, so be it. As as long as uh, there's there's some attention to the that big elephant that's there in the living room, which is a dead relative. Some people might might hear you, and they and they say, um, "It sounds like that you had a lot of faith inside of your relationship as well," and that's a. Uh, a very powerful thing. Um, I know when we get in these conversations and and saying all the benefits that faith can have, especially when we talk about this national disaster, some people would say, well, isn't faith the reason that this happened in the first place? Isn't uh, radical Islamic uh, terrorism the reason it's happening? And wasn't this Islam versus Christianity? And so to ignore that is to ignore the real framing. And by doing using more faith, we're actually just digging ourselves in a deeper hole than that. What would what would your response to that be? Well, if if you go to the FBI statistics on uh, 
bombings like the San Bernardino, mm-hmm. Bernardino uh, mass shootout, uh, you'll find that a lot of those people are either Christians or nationalists who you know don't believe in government. You'll find a lot of Islamic people as well, and you'll find a lot of just plain crazy people. You know, those are the three major groups. But to think that the only people who have wild shootouts are Islamic radicals, it just you know that's not that's not the reality. So what does this say about our faith? Then, then you know that that's such a big chunk of the people who kill in these mass shootings, you know, which are described as you know, more than three dead, uh, what does it say about our faith that many people do it in the name of our God you know, and, uh, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit? What kind of faith does that? So... Uh as we wrap this up, I, I I feel like I could talk to you for for hours about all of this. Um, it's I think it's it truly is very brave of you to put yourself out here to go to to cities that you don't know to talk to rooms full of strangers that you don't know to sit down here and and lend your voice to hundreds of other strangers uh, that you don't know. And sometimes we can be limited by you know just the number of words we can say or do. What is your main message? What do you hope that people get out of your speeches, out of this documentary? Um, what is your main hope that you're getting out there? That people come to realize what I realized early on, which was that those guys who killed my son crossed an invisible barrier, an invisible line, uh, because of their faith. And you know something, we are all potential killers that way. Anybody who has a strong faith and looks at it in a certain way, or a strong political ideology, and I know from my own experience as a young guy, you know, dealing with politics and so, and so on, can say to herself or himself, yeah, it's violent, I know it's violent, but you know, what else can we do? Uh, how, how else can we achieve our objectives? And it's a lie. It's a real lie. You know, that invisible line uh, you should never cross. And that requires self-knowledge. You know, it also requires seeing people as my son mainly saw them, which was they're human beings. You know, that's 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 how he related to people. Something that I, I had to learn myself. Let's say that looking back um, to this time period we are right now, maybe 100 or 200 years from now, uh, after both of us are, are long gone and history is moving on, what do you hope that we as an American society do at this point in response to 9-11? Because for a lot of people, it seems like this is the way life has been forever, but truly, it's only been 16 years, and in the scope of time... That is not very much. Our policies are in flux about what we're to do right now. So let's say in the distant future, um, what do you hope that we as an American society do? In the distant future, well, first of all, I hope that we're still around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, 
there's a main major danger that our seeing nature and, and animals as something that is at our disposal may just kill us. You know, we're beginning to see things like that already happening. So I hope we're still around because we've learned in how to not tame nature but live with nature. And I hope uh, we're still around because some guy somewhere decided that it would be cool to drop a nuclear weapon on some other guy somewhere. And then that starts that chain reaction which leads to basically a, the human species maybe not dying totally, but certainly in big trouble. And uh, I hope that in the distant future, if we have been able to achieve those things, that we have a world in which uh, people actually uh, live better lives than we live now. A world with, you know, uh, living a fantastic life is only for that upper 10% of the population that happens to have the right kinds of background, education, property. Uh, I hope that in that world, uh, people who are now in poverty and hopeless because of it see themselves as uh, being able to live a meaningful life. I think those are lofty goals. Um, I'll be here trying to make it happen, and I'm so glad that you're out there trying to make this a reality as well. So uh, today I was joined by Orlando Rodriguez. Um, if people want to see the, the documentary, I will find the Vimeo link, and I will put the link uh, here so you can click on it. Please please give it a watch. Um, if you can find – I'll also put a link to the educational copy – uh, invite some groups together, really get this message out. I think it's one that's so important if we are, as Orlando said, are going to intentionally start healing ourselves and the entire world. So thank you so much for being here, Orlando. It's my pleasure. All right, thank you, and we will see you next time. All right, great. today was Orlando Rodriguez speaking about his role in the documentary In His Son's Name and his experiences. Thank you again to Center for Faith Studies for being an amazing sponsor and also for being a great partner. Together, we can educate the world.